You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we open your word this day, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, uh, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word written for us. All for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I don't know what you just said to one another, but I think it's not always easy coming to church, is it? In fact, I'm willing to bet that for some of you here, coming to church is actually pretty hard. Some honest talk. When you come, you look around and what do you see? You see a group of people who appear, at least appear to always be growing in faith. And there's always that one person, isn't there? There's always that one person, Mr. Faithful, the man who every week just seems to get godlier and godlier. There he is, always smiling, laughing and happy. Oh, he's patient, he's kind, he's generous. He knows he believes and gosh, he even shares the gospel with people. And here's the worst part, right? When life gets harder, he just gets happier. It's, it's insufferable. It's as if his faith is on this upwards linear progression. In fact, no, it's, it's not linear, it's exponential, right? If you could graph his faith, it's asymptoting approaching Jesus, right? There he is, <laughs> growing from glory to glory, and all the while, here I am, struggling with the same old sins. A decade-long addiction to pornography. A tongue that cannot help but lead to gossip. And a heart that cannot be freed from the love of money. So there he is, we look at him, Mr. and Mrs. Faithful over there, and we wonder to ourselves, why aren't I changing? Why aren't I growing in faith? How is he so faithful? How is she so faithful? And I'm exactly the same as I was 10 years ago. You know, if anyone should be Mr. Faithful, let's face it, it's Abraham, isn't it? Over the last eight chapters, we've seen how God showed him time and time again, his promises are sure. Abraham has every reason to be growing in his faith. But in Genesis 20, we realize that Abraham, he's actually much more like we are. He's like us who struggle every day. And in this chapter, everything, everything comes crashing down like a house of cards. As Abraham has a massive relapse of faith. And it's not just Abraham, no, it's Lot's daughters as well. So today, here's what we're going to do. Here's the game plan. We're going to look at two relapses and then draw out three reminders. Okay, two relapses three reminders. Relapse number one, Lot's daughters. I want you to imagine for a moment, pray that this doesn't happen, that one of you here suddenly keels over and suffers a massive heart attack. That the paramedics scramble in, they rush you off to Monash Medical Center. The doctors save your life just in time. When you come to your senses, you wake up and your surgeon looks at you and says, mate, you're lucky to be alive. And if you ever want to avoid this ever happening again, you need to change your lifestyle. So here's the deal. Stop smoking, start exercising, and give up McDonald's. 
sugar-free Coke, it's a scam, right? What would you do? What would you do? I mean, I'd like to think you'd change your lifestyle, wouldn't you? But I do wonder sometimes how many heart attack survivors end up relapsing? How many of them return to the very lifestyle that almost killed them? And I wonder how many of us relapse. How many of us return to the very sins that once spiritually killed us? You see, in Genesis 19, Lot's daughters, think about it, right? They survive a near-death experience far worse than any heart attack. Remember what happened. Their father, their very own father, offered them up to be gang-raped by a violent mob. But the angel saved them just in time. Doesn't stop there though, does it? These daughters then watch God destroy their city for its sin and its rebellion. They see their fiancés mock the warnings of judgment only to be swept up in that very judgment. And they see their own mother turn into a pillar of salt all because she longed to return to the city of sin. Now, Now if you were Lot's daughters, how would surviving God's judgment change your life? I mean, you'd like to think, right? You'd like to think it would change it permanently. That, that you'd fear God's judgment. If it were me, I would then live every day clinging to God's promise of salvation. Wouldn't you? Surely you would turn away from that life of lust and turn towards the God of love. I mean, if I knew that my sexual sin incurred God's wrath and judgment and wiped out my city, I wouldn't go near it with a 10-foot long barge pole. After surviving that judgment, I would fear God more than anyone or anything else. But, instead of fearing the Lord, Lot's daughters fear the world. They're just like a heart attack survivor who returns to the very lifestyle that almost killed them. And these daughters return to the very sin that destroyed their city. Why? They fear the world more than they fear the Lord. They fear the world more than they fear the Lord. Just notice, right, in verse 31, what do they fear? They fear that there is no man in the land to sleep with, uh, sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. So, so th- th- just think about it, right? These daughters, they're afraid of not being able to bear children. Now, don't pile on too quickly, right? On one level, we should, we should sympathize with them. What we should empathize with them. There's a real sadness, at grieving the loss of a child you've never met. Shame at not being the mother you're expected to be. And at that time in particular, though also now ours today, there is a real fear, who will look after me in my older age? No, friends, the fear of childlessness, especially in that culture, is real. But instead of trusting God's greater promises. What do these women do? They return to the sin that destroyed their city. It's gross, isn't it? They get their father drunk and sleep with him to bear children. And yet it's also painfully ironic. The father who offered up his daughters to be raped is now raped by those very daughters. Now, I can't help but think of Noah and his sons, right? Just remember, right? After God saves them through the flood, what happens? Noah gets drunk and his sons relapse into sin. And here, after God saves them through the fire, 
Lot gets drunk and his daughters relapse into sin. It seems absolutely insane. Why in the world would these daughters relapse so badly? They fear the world more than they fear the Lord. They saw God's judgment, right? They even survived His wrath and yet still, still they do not fear Him. They are more afraid of this world. So they relapse. And in verses 37 to 38, they leave a legacy of sin. A legacy of sin. Their sons who are born in sin become nations who are defined by sin. You see, the Moabites and the Ammonites become two of the most godless nations right throughout the Old Testament. But the legacy of sin is so deep that in Deuteronomy 23, God even forbids any Moabite or Ammonite from ever entering his assembly. Period. No, Agatha Christie was right. Old sins cast long shadows. And it all started because Lot's daughters feared the world more than they feared the Lord. Relapse number two. Relapse number two. Abraham's relapse. I want you to imagine now that you've just started dating someone. Unless you're married, that would be simple, right? So, I want you to imagine they've just started dating someone. It's early in the relationship still. Your head over heels in love. Life couldn't be better. Rainbows and unicorns everywhere you look. And then one day, you notice something. You find your girlfriend scrolling through your WhatsApp messages. So, you go, oh, what what are you doing? And she she goes to pieces. And she confesses that there's an insecurity deep in her. And this early on in the relationship, she just, it's just so hard to trust you. So you think to yourself, okay, fair enough, I get it. It, It'll just take time. So she apologizes, you forgive her, you both move on. Life is good. And you know what? Over the next year, it is good. Your relationship flourishes. It grows. You couldn't be happier. So what do you do? You call some of the boys. You set out to all diamonds in Elsinwick to buy a ring for her. Until one day, you find her by your bedside, scrolling through your WhatsApp messages yet again. A whole year off. How would you feel? I've been pretty gutted, right? I mean, like, uh, surely by now our trust would have grown. Surely by now you'd trust my word. Surely by now you'd have faith in my commitment to you. And then what you realize is this. Throughout the entire year, the whole year, she's been checking messages behind your back. And all this time you thought you were growing closer, but all this time, she never fully trusted. And again, before we pile on too quickly, because she's afraid. She's afraid of being hurt. So in her fear to be crass, she takes out an insurance policy against you. It's not quite a relapse of faith, is it? It's more like chronic infidelity. And that's what we find with Abraham in Genesis 20. I mean, I wonder, as you read this chapter, did it sound at all familiar? 
just think about it, right? Abraham, he travels to a new land. He, he meets a foreign king. He tells a half-truth that Sarah is his sister. The king somehow believes that lie uh, and takes Sarah in. God then curses the king, protects Sarah, and he finally restores his plans and purposes. And you might sit here and go, mm, sounds familiar. It is almost to the detail, the very same sin that Abraham committed back in Genesis 12. It's remarkable, isn't it? Just think about it. As soon as he received God's promises in verse 1, what does he do in just in verse 11? He takes out an insurance policy against God. He protects his own assets. And here he is, eight chapters and 25 years later, doing it all over again. Oh no, this is not a relapse of faith. It is chronic infidelity. And so just like the insecure girlfriend, he doesn't trust God's word. He doesn't have faith in God's promise. He's entirely driven by fear. I mean, look at his reason there in verse 11. What does he say? I thought there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. I mean, come on. That statement is dripping with irony, isn't it? Because the one place where there was no fear of God was in Abraham's own heart. He's so afraid of the world. He's so afraid that the kings of this world will kill him because of his wife. And the one person he does not fear, the one person he does not trust, is the one person over all whom he should fear and trust. He does not fear the Lord. Just like Lot's daughters, he fears the world more than he fears the Lord. You'd think, wouldn't you? After not just one year of casual dating, no, 25 years, 25 years of covenant commitment, surely he would trust God's promise. You would, you would think that, that he would have faith in God to protect him. After all, God protected Sarah from Pharaoh in exactly the same circumstances. Why wouldn't he now protect Abraham from Abimelech? No, Abraham fears the world more than he fears the Lord. The irony couldn't get thicker. Because the one person who actually fears the Lord here, the Bimelech. I mean, verse 5, right? He acts with a clear conscience and clean hands. Verses 15 and 16, he gives Abraham full access to his land and 1,000 pieces of silver. It's a lot of money. And in verse 16, he even goes along with Abraham's half-truth, which is just really a full lie, and calls him Sarah's brother. No, no, no. The one person who actually fears the Lord the pagan king. I don't know about you, I, I get to the end of this chapter and I know it's sort of like you think as a Christian you shouldn't feel this way, but I feel sorry for Abimelech. I mean, I thank God that in the end his family is restored, but we just get to the end of the chapter and go, why isn't Abraham punished for his infidelity? Why isn't he judged for his fear and faithlessness? I mean, surely, right, one of the key messages of Genesis is this. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful to his promises. God forgives the unfaithful sinner. I, I, I love chapters like this. I absolutely love them because you kind of get to the end of it and there's something in us that balks at God's forgiveness, isn't there? It grates against us. It just seems 
unfair. And yet, isn't that the unfairness of the gospel? That Jesus died to save unworthy, fearful and faithless sinners like us. We look at Abraham and think to ourselves, he doesn't deserve a second chance. And the Apostle Paul says, well, neither do we. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we became saints, Christ died for us. No, but while we were still sinners, while we were undeserving, while we were unworthy, while we were fearful, while we were faithless. There's something inherently unfair about the gospel. Nothing unjust, but something inherently unfair about it. You see, God doesn't give Abraham the judgment he deserves, and he doesn't give us the judgment we deserve. In fact, He sends His own Son, Jesus, to bear that judgment in our place. It's just, but by some standards it ain't fair. It's mercy. It's grace. It's love. When I think about it, I don't want fairness. I want forgiveness. If you're not a Christian, you might think that God only accepts good people who deserve it. And so you might think, well, that rules me out. God will never accept me. Praise God for Genesis 20. Because look at Abraham. Here is a man who is faithless, fearful and undeserving and yet God still forgives him. He accepts him. And he keeps his promise to give him a whole new life. You're not a Christian. If you trust that very same promise, it won't matter how faithless, fearful or undeserving you've been. You could be as faithless as Abraham, but if you turn to God, if you cling to His promise, I promise you He'll forgive you. He'll accept you. And He will give you a whole new life. And just as Vicky said, you'll never regret it. You will never regret it. Two relapses. Now, three reminders. Reminder number one, beware our besetting sins. Beware our besetting sins. See, you might read this chapter and see Abraham's fear as a mere relapse of faith. But we've seen, haven't we? It's far worse. It's so much worse. It's not a relapse. It's chronic infidelity. It's not a one-off sin. It's Abraham's besetting sin. Notice, right? This is why it pays to read your Bible carefully. Notice in verse 13, when exactly Abraham's sin first took root. So, when God had me wander from my father's house, think Genesis 12, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, here's my brother. When did it all start? Oh, no, 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 it didn't start here in Genesis 20, it started back in Genesis 12. It started just moments after receiving God's promise. You see, when God told Abraham, leave everything you've ever known to receive blessings you've never imagined, what does Abraham do? Just like Lot's daughters, just like the insecure girlfriend, he takes out an insurance policy against God. It's as if he says to Sarah all the way back in Genesis 12, look, here's what we'll do. We'll cast our lot in with God, but in case it all goes wrong, don't worry. I've got a fallback plan. God might be our plan A, but if it all goes to custard, don't worry, I've got plan B ready to go. No, this is not mere negligence. This is intentional, 
It is premeditated. It's as if, right, imagine this, it's as if Abraham signed a prenup to protect his assets. And mate, nothing, nothing, right, communicates trust in marriage like a prenup, does it? He pretty much signed the divorce papers before the wedding ceremony. Abraham, he wants all the benefits, but none of the commitment. He's like the groom who says to his bride, staring into her eyes, I will give you all of me. Except the bank account. And leave me alone with my career. And the mistress by the side. Leave those things alone and now this is going to work just fine. That's how Abraham is thinking. It was in verse 13. Notice again, read it carefully. He blames the Lord for the cost of his promises. Notice he doesn't say, when God promised me. He says, when God had me wander from my father's house. Whose fault is it? God's fault. He made me do this. He made me put it all on the line. So you know what? I'm going to protect my assets. I'm going to take out insurance against God. And can I tell you, he's claimed that insurance policy a thousand times over. Read it carefully again, same verse. Show your loyalty to me wherever we go. Well, eight chapters have passed. They've gone to a lot of places. See, this might just be the second time we're seeing it, but I can guarantee you this is Abraham's besetting sin. It raises the same question for us. Have we taken out insurance against the promises of God? Have we taken out insurance against the promises of God? I wonder, right, whether we do this most with our money. It's the most obvious place to go, surely. We're we're happy to live as faithful Christians. We're happy to serve in church. We're even happy to share the gospel with our friends. But, But all the while, we amass a small fortune for ourselves because if God falls through, at least I have my wealth. Now I know, no one's going to be that brazen in saying it. But it all starts with fear. In our heart of hearts, we're afraid that God won't provide for us. We're afraid that if we live for the gospel, if we give God our everything, well, that everything might just include our money, our security, our homes and our careers. So we take out insurance against God. We sign a prenup in our marriage with Him. I will love the Lord with all my heart, all my soul, and all my strength. But not my wealth, not my marriage, and not my career. You know what, God? You leave those things alone, and this, it'll work out just fine. Let me ask, if you said that to your spouse, how do you think they would feel? What do we say to our God? Beware our besetting sins. Number two, number two, fear God and no one else. Fear God and no one else. Well, Genesis 12, the choice we faced, right, was between faith and fear. Will we fear the famine and Pharaoh or will we have faith in the promises of God? But here in Genesis 20, the choice isn't between faith and fear. No, it's between, in one sense, fear and fear. Will we fear the world or will we fear the Lord? Now, when I say fear the Lord, I don't mean simply being afraid of God. No, I mean trusting Him, honoring Him, revering Him, living with Him as our King. If Genesis 20 shows us anything, it's this. We all fear something. 
We all fear something. If we are not fearing the Lord, we will be fearing the world. If we're not trusting the Lord, we will be trusting the world. But friends, only the Lord is truly worth fearing. Only the Lord is truly worth trusting. See, the tragedy of it all is, we think if only Abraham had feared the Lord by trusting his promise, then then he would have never needed to fear the world. He would have seen the world as something not even worthy of being feared. No, I get it. No one wants to suffer. No one wants to be in pain and poverty. No one wants to experience sadness and sorrow. They're real fears. And the truth is, without God, we should be very afraid. But friends, let me encourage you, when you are afraid of the world, look to the promises of God. Look at how He judges the faithless nations. Look at how He provides for His faithful people. When you fear the world and all that this world brings in its pain and its persecution and its death and its opposition to the plans and purposes of God, when you are afraid of the world, cling to God's promise and then, here's the next step, confront your fears. I love what Peter Adams says. If we run away from pain and suffering and sorrow and death, that will increase their power over us. Face them and embrace them for the glory of God. If you face and embrace them, their power is reduced and we can then form a new habit, trusting in the good purposes of God. Truly, those who fear God have nothing else to fear. Isn't that beautiful? Those who fear God have nothing else to fear. Don't be afraid that following Jesus isn't worth it. He might demand your everything. Gosh, He does demand your everything. But the blessings He gives are far greater than the security we sacrifice. Do not fear the world. Fear the Lord and you will have nothing else to fear. Finally, number three, third reminder, pray. Pray and your guilt will be forgiven. In this chapter, we find the very first mention in the entire Bible of a prophet. In verse 7, Abraham is the prophet who will pray for the forgiveness of the guilty. And it's quite sad, right? When you play out what happens here, it's all pretty tragic, right? Step one, Abraham is guilty, Abimelech is innocent. Step two, Abraham brings guilt upon Abimelech and his household. Step three, through Abraham's prayers, God takes that guilt away. And that's exactly what he does in verse 17 when he prays to God. Abraham prays and what does God do? He forgives Abimelech's guilt. Some of you here today might come to church each week and the reason why you struggle to come to church is not just because you see a group of ever-increasing godly people, but every time you hear God's word, it feels just like a punch in the gut. It just feels like, oh, again, I'm not living up to it. Why am I not there yet? You struggle with your besetting sins, areas of your life which you know in your heart of hearts you've ensured from God. You've put up the do not disturb sign. It could be a love of money. 
and idolatry of marriage and relationships, an unhealthy friendship, an insatiable career ambition. And you know in your heart of hearts, I know in my heart of hearts, my sin. I know is chronic infidelity. And no matter how hard I try, you know what? I just can't kick the habit. Matt, I've tried absolutely everything. And this is a sin I simply cannot kill. And if that's you, you know what? You and me, we're just like Abimelech. We need innocence. We need a prophet. We need a prophet who can pray for us and remove our guilt. So you then might think, Adam, I've been praying about this sin for years and it just won't go away. I've even paid money to see that weird guy over there and he prays for me and that doesn't work either. Don't do that. That's bad, right? Like, I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about me. I'm not talking about that weirdo over there. The prophet that you need is Jesus. The prayers that you need are His. The forgiveness that you need is His. Jesus is the prophet who prays for us. Trivia question number one. What is Jesus doing right now? That's right, you guessed it, or not. Jesus is in heaven praying for us. Jesus is in heaven praying for us. Romans 8.34 says that Jesus is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. You see, friends, you and I, we can pray for forgiveness. We can pray for real and lasting change knowing that Jesus is the one who prays for us. He is the prophet whose prayers we need. And guess what? He is the prophet whose prayers we have. I love what John Calvin writes this. God hears our prayers, as it were, from the lips of His Son. God hears our prayers, as it were, from the lips of His Son. Don't give up praying. God hears your prayers, as it were, from the lips of His Son. And He answers your prayers, as it were, as if he were answering his own son. Don't think that God cannot and will not take your guilt away. Don't ever think that he will not take you or free you of your besetting sins. He has. He can. He will. You see, the one prayer that God will never fail to answer is this. Please forgive me. So pray and your guilt will be forgiven. You know, when you come to church next week, or maybe even after this as you look around, you see people here who just ever-increasing godliness, right? You spotted the Apostle Paul somewhere here, right? And I know it can be discouraging. It can be a real punch in the gut to see people who seem to be just going so well. And there's this sin I just cannot Brothers and sisters, don't be discouraged. Sanctification is not an upward linear progression. It's definitely not an exponential asymptote approaching Jesus. If anything, it's a line of best fit, right? There's going to be moments when you'll be faithful and moments where the battle just gets too hard. But don't give up. Don't be discouraged. The beautiful thing about this chapter is God didn't let Abraham's sins prevail. And he won't let yours either. Now, his faithfulness 
is infinitely greater than our faithlessness. If you feel convicted of your besetting sins, if you find your heart afraid of this world and all that it might bring, fear the Lord. Trust in His promise. Rest in His care. He will not let your sin destroy you. He will not let this world consume you. He loves you too much to let your sin win the day. Truly, those who fear God have nothing else to fear. Let me pray. God of all mercy, we come before you weak, frail, faithless, and afraid. We look at our lives and everything that's out there in the world and we see what it looks like to live as a Christian and we just can't help but be afraid. We can't help but think life is going to be hard for us. And the worst part is you even promised that it will be hard for us. And we don't know if we can do it. And some of us here today have nursed and kept and fed sins in our heart and our life that we hold on to because the world is just too scary. We pray, God, that your spirit will work deep in our hearts. Uproot those sins from our hearts. Change our heart from the inside out. And in our weakness, as we fall on our knees in tears, pleading with you, God, to change us, we hold on to that great hope knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ prays for us and that you, Heavenly Father, hear our prayers, as it were, from the lips of your Son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.